Well, we're not in Mark's gospel anymore, clearly. We have turned to uh, another passage altogether, and uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun this morning. Uh, this is a Church Planner Sunday, where typically Demetrius would be up here giving his vision for Christ Our Hope Church in Flint, Michigan, but because he couldn't make it um, this year, I was like, what am I going to do? How do I come up with a, a church planner here to preach on Church Planning Sunday? And so I decided... Um, as I was looking through my notes here, I'm like, why don't I give the sermon that I preached 10 years ago when I was actually candidating to launch Redemption City Church here in Grand Rapids? I probably need to hear that message again, and then maybe some of you might benefit from it as well. And uh, interestingly enough, that message comes out of uh, 1 Samuel uh, 14. So we're going to get Demetrius here. He's going to come and preach and bring God's word, and I think you're going to be really encouraged about the work happening already in Flint, Michigan. But for this morning, I want to give you a little bit of the, the sermon that really helped uh, me as I stepped out into this church planning vision uh, years ago. The title for my sermon is Risk is Right. It's my uh, attempt at a biblical theology of, uh, of risk-taking, if you will, for the kingdom of God. Biblical theology of risk-taking. Well, the particulars of the story are unique to their Old Testament context. I'm convinced the principles undergirding this text are universal, and I think, I'm hoping, you're going to find them applicable to your life. So this morning, I want to look at the situation in which we find ourselves this morning. Apparently, that outline's totally wrong. I guess I changed it. The situation, <laughs> look at that. This is wonderful. We're firing at all cylinders here. The situation this morning, the risk and the results. The situation, the risk, and the results. As we're going through this text, I think that'll make sense as we're going there. And my aim for this morning, hopefully I've got the right aim on there, aim for this morning's sermon is that it might inspire radical risk-taking grounded in the sovereignty of God for the advance of the kingdom of God and ultimately for the glory of God here in our city, across our state, and ultimately out to the nation. So let's pray uh, that God might be pleased to, to do that, even this morning as we open his word. And so, Father, uh, some of us are risk-takers by nature, so even the thought of talking about risk-taking in church is exciting. Uh, thinking about starting new things is exciting. Being entrepreneurial is exciting. Um, and so we need little prodding to step into that space. Others of us are a little more timid and a little more fearful. And when it comes to taking big risks and bold steps for the kingdom of God, like planting a church in Flint, Michigan, who would have thought the audacity to go plant a church called Christ Our Hope in the middle of that community um, takes a little bit more prodding. So I pray that wherever we find ourselves on the spectrum of risk-taking this morning, uh, that our hearts would be grounded in not a, a foolish sort of risk-taking, but in a sanctified uh, theology of risk-taking this morning as we think about the opportunities we all have to advance the kingdom of God, to take risks, to see God's kingdom move forward in our lives. So would you come this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you keep us a church that's open to taking new risks, taking steps of faith out into the unknown to see your work continue to advance here in Grand Rapids and around the world. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are 
need to set up the context here because we are in a totally new book of the Bible. We're in 1 Samuel 14 in a story that is probably somewhat obscure to some of you. Maybe others of you have heard this story before and immediately know what it's all about. But I imagine for most of you, 1 Samuel 14 is one of those rather obscure, kind of under-resourced stories in the Bible. So let me set the stage here. Let me give you a little bit of background that I hope will help you find your place as we are moving forward. And then we'll dig into 1 Samuel 14, and we'll get right to business on the text here. Uh, So you know it's bad in a situation. This is a particularly dark season in Israel's history, and you know it's bad when Israel has rejected God and they have asked for a king like all the nations around them, right? And they find one, worst of all. They find a guy, he's tall, he's impressive looking, and his name is King Saul. Not a a great start here. You know it's bad when the king's son is leading the battles while the king is hiding in the back, trembling in fear. This is all chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. You know it's bad when a Philistine army with thousands of chariots, thousands of horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore is about to attack. You know it's bad when the king panics and offers sacrifices out of desperation instead of waiting for a word from the Lord. You know it's bad when the king's dynasty has just been doomed for his disobedience to God. And you know it's bad when God's prophet Samuel leaves and Saul, the king, is completely without guidance from the Lord. And you know it's bad when the king's army has dwindled down to a mere 600 men. And you know it's bad when only the king and his sons have weapons. This is the context here for what God is about to do in 1 Samuel 14. And this is all the lead up in verse or chapter 13. The situation is dire, but dire circumstances call forth both our best and our worst, right? You know that, right? Some of these crisis situations are maybe where God breaks through in your life in new ways or ways maybe you crumble and you've had to recover from that and walk through that. For Saul, this situation brings out the absolute worst in him, right? This is a man who is being driven by fear, right? He's disobeying God and he's reaping the consequences. He's lost not only this battle, um, he's lost not only his army, he's lost not only his nation, but the dynasty that is about to follow him. All of those things utterly devastated. And now it'd be tempting, I think, to evaluate the character flaws in Saul's life. And we spent a whole series a couple years ago going through uh, the life of Saul and all of the things we can learn from his life, all the ways he, he failed to live as the king God had called him to be. But I think it's important this morning that we face our own fears and these uh, deeply flawed characters in the Old Testament invite us to do exactly that because fear, right, is is the primary enemy. It's the thing that holds us back from taking risks, for stepping forward in faith to do what God wants us to do. Think of all the fears that surround us as we are just walking through our everyday lives. Fear of failure, perhaps. Uh, fear of rejection. Uh, fear of losing others' approval. Fear of losing our freedom, maybe just being stuck, right? Fear of being alone. Fear about our health or safety, fear about the future, fears about our families, fears about job security, fears about financial security. Think of all the fears that you're carrying with you this morning into church. Saul's struggle is our, our struggle, and fear paralyzes us from taking risks, 
for God and his kingdom. Uh, Jan Martel said this about fear in his uh, classic, The Life of Pi. I thought this was very insightful and uh, an interesting word for all of us about fear. Uh, He said this, I must say a word about fear. It is life's only true opponent. Only fear can defeat life. It is a clever, treacherous adversary. How well I know. It has no decency, respects no law or no convention, shows no mercy. It goes for your weakest spot, which it finds with unnerving ease. It begins in your mind always. You must fight hard to express it. You must fight hard to shine the light of words upon it. Because if you don't, if your fear becomes a wordless darkness that you avoid, perhaps even manage to forget, you open yourself up to further attacks of fear because you never truly fought the opponent who defeated you. And that is exactly where Saul is at in this narrative in 1 Samuel, right? He is lost in the darkness of his own fear. He's lost his nation. He's lost his kingdom. He's going to lose absolutely everything because fear has just dominated his life and he never wrestled with it. He never worked through it. He never brought it to the light of day. He never brought the truths of the gospel home to it. It's a tragic narrative. It's one of those just downward spiraling narratives where you just think, gosh, this is about the most depressing text we could read. But if you find yourself in a dark season like this, uh, I don't know where you're at personally right now, uh, but if you find yourself in one of these dark seasons, take heart. This is often when God is on the move. We don't have to live in fear. We have an opportunity to take those fears to God. That is what we see in our story this morning as we get to our text in 1 Samuel 14. Saul's son Jonathan is in the same situation. He's part of this nation that is under attack. He is in the same army. He's even in the king's family, right? He's the king's son. But his response couldn't be more different than his father's. So we've looked a little bit, hopefully set up the situation here. Let's move on to the risk. This is where it gets more interesting. We go from, from Saul's fear, trembling in fear before the battle, to Jonathan. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to follow along closely because the narrative is really interesting, and I'm not going to get to talk about all the exciting points in here as we're moving through. But in 1 Samuel 14, we read these words, right? Jonathan has a risky plan. His father is hiding in the back, trembling in fear at the threat of these soldiers. Jonathan is looking at this situation entirely differently. So 1 Samuel 14, 1, on the day, one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Jonathan is spoiling for a fight in this text. He started it back in chapter 13, verse 3, and he wants to finish it. So he dreams up this bold plan to single-handedly take on an entire garrison of Philistine soldiers. Uh, But he did not tell his father. And why this juicy little tidbit here, the narrator, right, is developing a contrast here between Saul's cowardly disposition and Jonathan's old faith, right? His father would not be enthused about this risk-taking plan to go expose his life and his soldiers to certain death. We see Saul is already hiding out uh, under a pomegranate tree or in a pomegranate cave, depending on your translation. With 600 men, he's got some discredited priests around him with a long history of falling away from the Lord. Can't get into all that this morning. Um, And finally, we learn something of the topography in verses 4 
and 5. This is interesting. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sena. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other, the south, in front of Geba. Jonathan is going to have to scale a cliff to get to the Philistine garrison. So this is no walk in the park. These are cliffs with particularly challenging terrain. The, the commentator Dale Ralph Davis suggests slippery and thorny as two uh, Hebrew translations for these two cliffs that Jonathan is about to scale. So this is not a recon mission. Jonathan wants some action. So Jonathan is going to scale some cliffs and single-handedly attack a garrison of professional soldiers. I think this qualifies as a fairly risky plan and idea. Second, I want you to notice Jonathan's motivation. Why is it that he wants to strike this blow to the Philistines? Uh, Read along with me in verse 6. This is the banner text in our passage uh, this morning. 1 Samuel 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. In other words, these people were not God's people. Uh, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I I love this passage of Scripture, right? Jonathan is not just a risk-taking sort of guy who just, he just, you know, is just, you know, loves the adrenaline rush. His personality is just all about risk and adventure and excitement. Um, There's something deeper going on that's undergirding his motivation to strike a great blow for the Lord. Jonathan is depending on God to come through in this situation. It's not about Jonathan's personality, his abilities, his circumstances, but about God and his power. And I love this word here um, in verse and also in verse 6, that it may be. Uh, if you're reading the NIV, it says, perhaps. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. It may be that the Lord will work for us, which communicates the genuine degree of uncertainty that Jonathan has about what God is going to do. This is not an audible voice. This is not a vision. This is not a dream. Uh, Jonathan is genuinely unsure whether the Lord is going to come through. And this is where the risk comes in. It's perhaps the Lord will work, perhaps he won't. But isn't this something that if he did come through, that would be an incredible thing, right? And isn't it something worth dying for, worth taking a risk for, worth seeing if God would come through and deliver his people as he's done so many times throughout history? Why wouldn't God want to do this, right? Far from paralyzing his decision-making, this uncertainty is the incentive for moving forward. You know, most would say, well, perhaps the Lord's in it. Probably shouldn't do it then. (laughs) I would like a guarantee. Could you give me 100% on this? (laughs) Could you give me the odds of how successful this is going to be? Or or, or maybe give me some assurances that this is going to work out well? No, Jonathan's like, I don't know. I mean, I could live, I could die. But this is a battle worth taking. This is a step of faith worth jumping into. And the second half of this verse shows us Jonathan's faith that if God works, victory is inevitable. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. He may or he may not, but if he does, victory is certain, right? Numbers are irrelevant. Strengths and weaknesses are irrelevant. Circumstances are irrelevant. Strategy and military tactics are irrelevant. Jonathan's confidence is placed solely on the sovereignty 
of God. I love that about this text, man. He is like, man, if the Lord works for us, nothing is going to hinder the Lord from saving. And then third, he finds a friend to go along with him, right? His armor bearer is with him. I love this in verse 7. This is one of my favorite verses, I think, in the Bible. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul, right? Don't you want somebody who's all in with you on that kind of stuff? You're stepping out in faith to take a risk for God and his kingdom, and you've got somebody alongside who's with you, heart and soul in this a beautiful thing. I was just thinking last night, hanging out with the guys in my LTG group, man. So good to have a bunch of dudes hanging out together, uh, spending time in God's word, praying, uh, trying to be men of God together. What a powerful, profound thing for us to consider in this text. And then finally, and fourth and finally, we learn a little bit about the plan in verse 18 through 8 through 10. And the plan is also pretty interesting. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we'll cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place and we'll not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has been given them into their hands, and this shall be a sign. This is an interesting text, right? They're going to show themselves to the Philistines in such a way that there are only going to be two options. Right? Either the Philistines are going to come down to fight them, or they're going to go up and fight them. The word, the word show is somewhat ambiguous in the Hebrew. What exactly are they showing them? Um, I, my personal opinion, I think this is something of a Braveheart moment, right? They're going to make a certain kind of showing that is really going to insult their uh, enemies to such an extent that a battle is going to have to be raised, right? And they're going to pick a fight, and then battle is going to be joined, And so as we pick up the narrative here in verse 10, we see how this plays out. If you're following along with me here in verse 10, or actually not in verse 10, in verse verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan and his armor bearer said, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into our hands. And so they go through their plan. They insult the Philistines. The Philistines insist that they come up to do battle with them. And I love that Jonathan picked the more difficult decision as from the Lord. He's like, you know, if, they, if they're going to come down to us, we're not going to go there. But if they tell us to come up and fight them, they tell us we've got to climb these cliffs and battle them, that's the sign from the Lord that we go forward. So they're outnumbered, they're outpositioned, they're outgunned. They just lost the element of surprise. Nothing really is commending this as a military strategy here, right? Two guys have just shown themselves to an entire garrison. They've got to climb a cliff and strike a great battle for the Lord. And here we are about to get there. So Jonathan, like King David after him, is willing to take some great risks to strike a blow for God's Kingdom, right? How about you? When was the last time you took a sanctified risk for God and his kingdom? I I can think back to my original church planting journey here as my wife and I were considering taking the plunge to move to this city of Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, not knowing anybody, not being from this area. 
uh, my wife having grown up uh, not in as much of the Christian bubble of Grand Rapids, but the non-Christian bubble. And so here we did. We jumped in, the two of us, and I had my wife who was heart and soul with me in the journey and the adventure, and we landed here and parachute dropped into Grand Rapids to, to start a church. And it's incredible even to just look around and look at the friends and the people that have come along with us on that journey over the last 10 years. Look at those who have been a part of this journey, been heart and soul in it. And I think of the fruit that God has been able to advance through that over the last 10 years. Uh, just thinking, particularly celebrating our 10-year anniversary this year, to taking that risk and stepping out in faith. And so uh, I'd encourage you, you don't have to plant a church, right, to be uh, taking a risk for God and his kingdom. There are lots of wonderful opportunities and places uh, for you to step out in faith right where you're at right now. Maybe it does mean stepping out of the comfort zone of Grand Rapids and going out to the nations or planning a church or starting some new initiative. Uh, but we have an opportunity as God's people to step out in faith. So we've looked at the situation, the risk, and finally the results here in our text. Right? The time is over for talk, so Jonathan and his armor bearer storm the Philistine outpost. And we pick up the story in verses 13 through 14. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike when Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, a furrow's length in the acre's land. And there was a panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And so very quickly we could sketch how this thing plays out. If you can imagine any great military movie in front of you, there's intense climbing, there's intense battle sequences, Jonathan and his armor bearers single-handedly defeat a Philistine garrison, so probably some, an R-rated sequence here of blood and guts going on. So we won't get into that. But God uses Jonathan's bold plan to spread an even greater panic amongst the Philistine army. They think a great battle has just been joined uh, as this chaos ensues. And Saul, who's hiding out in the back, hears this commotion, rallies Israel's scattered army, Israelites that had joined the Philistines switch sides, and then all the Israelites who were formerly hiding in caves come out of hiding and join the battle. Because of Jonathan's daring attack, Israel is able to rout the entire Philistine army, and a great salvation comes to Israel. It's a huge victory for Israel, and the narrator concludes that it's not ultimately Jonathan's victory or even Saul's victory. Rather, in verse 23, we said that the Lord saved Israel on that day. That is the, the banner text. Uh, this risk that Jonathan takes ultimately is the Lord's victory. God wants to save his people, and he uses the bold, risk-taking actions of his people to advance his kingdom and move his kingdom forward. God ultimately is going to get the glory. Now, at this point, you may be saying, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to be like Jonathan or William Wallace and go take a hill for Jesus uh, or something of that, that nature. But, but wait a minute, man. We, before we send you out to take your hill, um, let me remind you that the Bible doesn't paint Jonathan or us as the hero of the story. God is the hero, right? As we see in verse 23, apart from the grace of God, Jonathan is, and we are much more like the crowd surrounding King Saul, trembling in fear, or the arrogant Philistines mocking God's people. We need to be rescued. We cannot speak about this daring young warrior Jonathan 
and his heroics on behalf of God's people without talking about a greater warrior who had came to face greater enemies and win an infinitely greater victory for God's people. We cannot read that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few without speaking about God's ultimate salvation definitively accomplished through one man. You see, Jonathan points us to Jesus because Jesus faced greater enemies than Jonathan. Jesus took on the religious establishment. The Romans, his own people turned against him. Even his best friends deserted him. Jesus took on Satan and his demons. Jesus took on sin and death. When we think about someone who took the greatest battle to face the greatest enemies, we look to Jesus. Jesus came with an even more likely mission than Jonathan. He came to die, right? No risk involved in God's plan. This is where the analogy breaks down, right? Jesus came to give his life, not to risk his life, but to give his life. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, 5, 3, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus accomplished, of course, an infinitely greater salvation than Jonathan, right? Salvation from sin, death, hell, and Satan, right? Jesus accomplished the reconciliation of all things through the blood of his cross. He's putting everything back together in this broken and fallen world, and he's starting with us. And Jesus won an infinitely greater victory than Jonathan. Again, Philippians 2, Paul says it this way, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Finally, Jesus calls us to greater risks for an even greater mission, right? We've Read over the last couple weeks, Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Jesus said this way in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Uh, Jesus said it this way in John 14, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater Things in these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that the apostles actually took Jesus seriously. They took Jesus at his word. They brought this gospel of the kingdom out from Jerusalem to Judea, uh, to Samaria, to the uttermost ends of the earth. That gospel moved to Rome, converted a Roman empire. It moved around the globe today so that people sitting halfway around the world in Grand Rapids, Michigan are a part of this same mission, right? The entire New Testament is a manual for radical risk-taking based on the sovereignty of God for the advance of his kingdom and the glory of his name. So what principles can we learn about risk-taking from this passage of Scripture? Uh, Let me give just a few in conclusion here as we're thinking about it. First and most important principle is that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan has gotten himself a big view of God and took great risks for him, right? That's the first thing. That whether, however, 
daring you are, however timid you are, right? If you're going to take risks bigger than you can personally accomplish on your own, if you're going to live life in a larger way than you could personally accomplish, you're going to have to get a big view of God, right? If, you're, if your success is going to be limited on your own personality, your own skills, your own abilities, right? Your floor is pretty low here, but if you invite God into the equation to come alongside of you, anything, anything is possible. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many by few, the, the William Carey, the founder of Modern Missions, said it this way uh, in a classic form, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I think that is true for church planning. I think that's true for any great venture of faith that you want to take. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Second, Jonathan did something great for the kingdom of Israel. And we have an opportunity to do something great for the kingdom of of God, right? For some of you, my wife and I, the call to plant a church and see a new gospel outpost set up in this city, right? Some of you are going to want to join a church plant. Some of you want to support a church plant. Some of you want to be part of a new church plant. Some of you in this room may be church planners that God is calling to step out, take risks, and plant a church right out of this church here, right? Some of you may go uh, be missionaries around the world, take the gospel to the unreached peoples of the world. Some of you are going to support those people. Some of you are going to encourage. Some of you might start a new nonprofit in our city to help serve the needs in our city. Some of you might start a business with a double or triple bottom line or bring your faith to the work that you already have. I love how Steve Childers says this. He says, God loves to manifest his presence and pour out his power on those who will dare to align their purposes more with him. God loves to manifest his presence and pour out his power on those who will dare to align their purposes more with him. We have an opportunity to do that this morning. And third, whatever kind of kingdom endeavor you get yourself into, find a friend who's with you, heart and soul. Find people who are passionate about the kingdom of God and scheme up some great plans together. The Christian journey was never meant to be walked out alone. Right? There, there is no Lone Ranger Christians in the Bible. In every circumstance, someone comes alongside in that journey uh, to be a part of it. That's why I love the LTGs we have here at our church, a bunch of guys, a bunch of girls getting together in these beautiful, tight relationships that go deep and follow Jesus in big and bold ways here. I want every human being, every person in this church to have those kind of relationships, people that are with you, heart and soul in the journey. Wouldn't it be beautiful if God continued to do that here at our church, brought people together so no one felt alone in the journey. No one felt like they were walking this journey on their own. And then finally, after saying uh, many other things, actually not finally, two more quick things. Check to see if there are signs from the Lord. We see this in Jonathan. He sets some signs. Interesting, the more difficult signs are the ones from the Lord. Is this about building your kingdom or God's kingdom? Is it about your glory or God's glory? Is it motivated by love or just ego? And then finally, take a risk, right? Do something so big, God has to be a part of it for it to actually happen, for it to actually succeed. And God will meet you, both in the successes and the failures of stepping out and trying to start something new. And if God is calling you right now, maybe building a passion in your heart to go or serve or be a part of it, don't leave this room without telling somebody, right? Some of these moments, man, we just feel a burden from the Lord, this call, this tug on our hearts, and then we just kind of walk away and then go, yeah, lunch would be great and maybe a little television. And we forget that God 
was calling us. This was a moment in our lives. So if God is calling you uh, to be a part of some great risk-taking initiative for his kingdom or some small one, just to walk across the street and talk to your neighbor or be a bolder witness for Christ in your, the place where you work or in your neighborhood, um, this is a moment right, for you to put a stake in the ground, as it were, an opportunity for you uh, to prepare yourself for that moment. We want to be a church that is expecting great things from God and attempting great things for him. We want to be a church that continues to have this uh, disposition to risk, right? We're 10 years in as a church plant. We're getting old. We could get established. We got a building. It'd be easy to rest on our laurels at this point in the journey. Uh, but I think this passage is an invitation for us uh, to keep that, that desire, to keep risk at the forefront for God and his kingdom. I know that I need that message as I'm think, praying about what God, what's next for me? What are we doing next as a church? What are the next big risks we want to take for you and your kingdom? And I pray that God would be stirring some of those same things in your hearts this morning. So let me pray that God might be doing that even this morning uh, as we spend time together here. Father, we thank you for this unique passage of Scripture. We thank you that it's put in your inspired word, a, a passage about sanctified risk-taking. Here's a man that saying it, maybe the Lord will work for us, but man, if he does, nothing can hinder him from saving by many or by few. I pray that each person in this room would have an opportunity to reflect on the opportunities they have to be a part of your kingdom work, to take risks, to step out in faith, to do the next thing that you're calling us to do. Would this be a place, uh, God, where we support each other and that where we encourage each other in that, uh, where there are people that are in it heart and soul together and no one feels like they've got to do this alone, but this has got to be a, some kind of a uh, Lone Ranger spirituality. But God, this would be a place where people are raised up together to be a part of what you're doing in the world. And so, yeah, I pray that you take this moment, this sermon. Um, yeah, God, use it for your glory and the advance of your kingdom. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.